0: Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is David Baltimore. David is one of the most accomplished biomedical scientists of the past 50 years. He recently won the Lasker-Kochland Award for Special Achievement. The award said that it was granted for, quote, the breadth and beauty of his discoveries in virology, immunology, and cancer, for his academic leadership, for his mentorship of prominent scientists, and for his influence as a public advocate for science, end quote. That's a lot. (laughs) It would take way more than an hour to discuss all of his scientific work and his work at the intersections of science and industry and science and society. But for those who could use a very brief history, here goes. Here goes. David made his name early in his career at MIT with the discovery of enzymes called reverse transcriptases. That work showed the world that the central dogma of biology, popularized by none other than Francis Crick, needed a pretty serious revision. At the time, the saying was that DNA makes RNA makes protein, and it was thought to be a one-way street of genetic information. Howard Temin at the University of Wisconsin and David Baltimore at MIT both showed that these reverse transcriptase enzymes convert the viral RNA genome of retroviruses into a complementary DNA, a cDNA molecule, which can then integrate into the host genome. In other words, genetic information could flow from RNA back to DNA in certain situations, and from that point forward, genetic information could be thought of as a two-way street in certain situations. That fundamental work in virology led him down a whole set of interesting paths in immunology and cancer biology. He won the Nobel Prize in 1975 for that work at the age of 37. Now at age 83, Baltimore is in a position to reflect. His career shows amazing range. I've heard one scientist say that Baltimore could easily have won two or even three Nobels. But there's more to his life than his discoveries he mentored hundreds of scientists through the years. Many ended up launching independent research careers of their own and 20 have been elected to the National Academy of Sciences. Leveraging his high profile platform, Baltimore took on academic leadership posts as the founding director of the Whitehead Institute for Biomedical Research, had a brief stint as president of Rockefeller University and then served as president of Caltech where he remains as professor emeritus. Throughout, He sought to be near the action, and exert some influence, in major bioethical debates of the day. That work dates back to the recombinant DNA controversies of the mid-1970s, to the still simmering CRISPR gene editing concerns of the present. And like some of the top scientists of his generation, he sought to be something of a bridge between the worlds of science and the society at large. It's always been a tricky balance. He doesn't have all the answers. He said in this interview that his thinking has evolved on societal debates over time in terms of who should be at the table. It would take at least 20 to 25 hours of interviews for me to fully explore this man's life in science, but I tried in this conversation of one hour to just hit some highlights. We talk about his upbringing, the value of humanities training for scientists that he got, some early career turning points, how he got involved with biotech, as the industry began to emerge, and the kind of opportunities he'd like to see open up for young scientists in the future. I actually think this conversation pairs quite well with the last episode with Tony Kalesa. Tony is young enough to be David's grandson, but I think they agree on at least one big fundamental issue, that scientific organizations today could do more to unleash the talents of young scientists. Now before we get started with this conversation, a word from the sponsor of The Long Run, AnswerThink. Today's sponsor, AnswerThink, has been consistently recognized by SAP, one of the largest enterprise software companies, as a top business partner for delivering and implementing SAP solutions for small and mid-sized life science companies. Their SAP certified solutions designed for the life sciences industry are pre-configured, rapidly deployable, and address fundamental business and IT challenges, such as integrating your business applications, delivering validated reporting, increasing your speed to market, support for global rollouts, as well as delivering a fully compliant solution that meets FDA strict standards. Explore how AnswerThink can streamline your business processes to ensure growth. Visit AnswerThink.com slash Timmerman and get a copy of their ebook, Top Three Barriers to Growth for Life Science Organizations. That's AnswerThink.com slash Timmerman. And I'm pleased to welcome a new sponsor this week, Absci. AbSci is all about creating new possibilities in the realm of protein-based therapeutics. What does this mean? AbSci has a fundamentally different approach to drug discovery. It designs and develops next-gen biologics of any modality, from antibodies to T-cell engagers to completely novel protein scaffolds, using a futuristic format it calls bionic proteins. Because AbSci conducts its screens in its scalable production cell line, It collapses several steps of biologics discovery into one integrated efficient process. AbSci also has a unique computational antibody and antigen discovery approach for isolating fully human antibodies from disease tissues and using these antibodies to identify novel drug targets. AbSci does all this with a powerful combination of deep learning AI and synthetic biology technologies. AbSci is already helping some of the best partners in biopharma translate their ideas into drugs. Check them out at absci.com and absi.ai. Now, please join me and David Baltimore on The Long Run. David Baltimore, welcome to The Long Run Podcast. Thank you. So I want to start off by giving you congratulations for this uh, Lasker Award, which you picked up recently—special uh, achievement, lifetime achievement—that really recognizes um, not just your contributions to biology, but also your work as an administrator and as a mentor to so many scientists through your career, and and a contributor to public policy debates. There's there's a lot of breadth. In here, and so I, I wonder, you know, when you got that, just curious, did you um, did this stand out for you among all the various awards that you've gotten through your career as as special in some way?
1: Well, yes, it did, um, and for a number of reasons. Um, one of them is the breadth of recognition, uh, because I have in my life tried to uh, participate in all the various aspects of being a scientist. And that includes administrative work. It includes uh, mentoring. uh, It includes the doing of science, uh, the publishing of science. And uh, there really are very few awards that uh, take into account all those aspects of scientific life. Uh, And so I was very honored by uh, the Lasker Award. Also, I knew Mary Lasker uh, and admired her devotion to science, although she herself had no scientific training. Uh, And so I, I, I really appreciated the connection yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, there was a great scientifically minded citizen, I guess you could say, yes. someone that that exactly. championed research and was a very effective advocate in on Capitol Hill. Yes. Okay. So I, I think one of the through lines uh listeners of this show uh recognize is that uh we like to talk about kind of where scientists and scientific entrepreneurs come from. And they come from many different walks of life, many different backgrounds. So where does your story begin, David? Uh, where did you grow up? I grew up uh, in
1: a suburb of New York City uh, on Long Island, Great Neck, Long Island. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went to public school there uh, through high school uh, and had the remarkable good fortune that my mother was interested in experimental psychology and was studying at the New School for Social Research in New York. And she saw there an ad for a summer program for high school students at the Jackson Laboratory in Bar Harbor, Maine. And she brought it home and said, would I be interested? And I said, I would, and we, I applied. Uh, and was accepted and spent uh, six or eight weeks uh, that summer uh, between my junior and senior years of high school. Uh, now, why do you think she brought this ad to your attention? Why well, I, well, I think she had seen that uh, I did well in science-related activities, mainly mathematics uh, at that at that stage um and that uh i got a, a, a real sense of excitement about learning the underpinnings of of uh, of the world um as a scientist does uh, and so uh, where
0: do you she- think that came from like that that desire to learn like to, that curiosity
1: as yeah. a kid I have no idea. Um, clearly, not many kids have it. Um, but uh, when you do have it, it's, it's pretty obvious to people around. Um, and I've always credited my mother with having recognized this in me. And it really was a, a recognition of my inheritance from her, because she was a scientist.
0: Um, now, were, were you bored in school? Were you not really challenged? Was she, was she seeking to uh, give you a little more challenge?
1: Uh, uh, yes, absolutely. I was bored completely in, in, um, in the science part of school, um, because I wasn't challenged. Um, and um, it doing the kind of math that we did in high school was a a trivial exercise for me. Um,
0: So you went to Jackson Lab uh, for part of a summer when you were in high school. Uh, What was important about that experience?
1: What was important was that I, first of all, met real scientists. Uh, many scientists came and spent the summers at Jackson Lab. The program that I was in was for 27 or something um, high school students. Um, and each of us had three mentors uh, who uh, asked us to do simple experiments um, in their own uh interests um, and so I was doing experiments uh, working at the forefront of science uh, because I was asking questions that it had that it didn't have a known answer and that was just incredibly exciting uh, to discover that the frontiers of knowledge, were accessible to me as a high school student uh, without a whole lot of background. Um, And uh, I was mentored by three people I later discovered were three of the greatest scientists in biology. Uh, People who were at the forefront of developmental biology um, Jackson was a, a laboratory of mouse genetics, and they were all geneticists. Uh,
0: and this would have been early to mid-50s uh, prior to Watson-Crick's discovery?
1: No, it was just after Watson-Crick's discovery. Okay. So that, that was in 1953, and this was the summer of 1955.
0: Okay. So were you aware of that at the time, that that big discovery? Was that, I don't know if that was really publicized at the time very much.
1: It was not publicized. I would not have been aware of it. Certainly my high school's teachers didn't know anything about it or didn't reflect it. Um, but at Jackson, they knew about it. Um, and I don't actually remember whether we discussed it or not. Um,
0: okay, but you caught the bug there at Jackson. The but science, I, I, I like this, this
1: world of discovery. Science, but it was the the bug of experimental science, of actually doing experiments and learning about nature. And that was the bug that I caught and that that drove me through the rest of my career.
0: Okay. So by the time you graduate and you go off to college, you you go to Swarthmore. Um uh, wh- why did you pick that place as opposed to some other place? Right. So many people
1: thought that I should go to MIT. Um which was the the Great Eastern Technical School. Um and I I thought about it. Um in the end I don't even think I applied uh, because I knew what I wanted to do in life. And therefore I didn't feel I needed the technical education that 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 was gonna be my life, uh, but that I had a sense there was much more in the world than technical knowledge. uh, And I wanted to, Expose myself to that to learn how to interact with the other elements of of the world. Uh, And so I chose to go to a liberal arts school.
0: And Swarthmore Uh, obviously has a great reputation as a small, broad based liberal arts uh, institution. So you're saying you knew you wanted to be a scientist, but you were you were actually attracted to the strength in the humanities that they had there. That's right. Um, So how did it work for you? Like, what what did you immerse yourself into and what did you learn there as well? Well,
1: I I was originally a biology major. I actually switched into chemistry in my last year for complicated reasons. Um, I should say that chemistry is the foundation of biology and so a chemistry major is probably the best thing a biologist a, a, a nascent biologist can do um and but i had roommates who were in other areas of of uh human knowledge uh, in the arts in political science um I had friends uh, who were in a whole variety of of activities. Um, I actually wasn't particularly close friends with other scientists there. Although there was a core of us who were aware that, that biology was undergoing a revolution and who wanted, all of us wanted, as much knowledge as we could get about what was going on in in contemporary biology. Um, And the Swarthmore educational system for honors students uh, was that we took seminars, uh, two seminars a semester for the last two years. Um, And those seminars were driven by the students. Uh, And so uh, we could drive those seminars to give us an understanding of what was going on in biology, even though the faculty itself didn't really understand what was going on because their own education had occurred well before the structure of DNA was was, uh, elucidated. um, And the issues about uh, genetic biology and regulatory biology, which were then explosively developing, uh, were to them, uh, not personally understandable.
0: It sounds like you had a lot of freedom and latitude to direct your studies and you were not just following the lead of the faculty or, you know, repeating what you read in some textbook back on the test.
1: That's exactly right. Um, and, uh, it was not just me, but as I say, there was a small cadre of us, um, all of whom went on in biology. Uh, you know, and,
0: this and- also reminds me of uh, you know my my book on Lee Hood, uh, a contemporary of yours. Um, right. When I looked at his life and talked with him about this period, uh, he had that same kind of freedom and latitude, um, but there was also a grounding. In heart, like, he went to Caltech as an undergraduate and like the core curriculum yes. of the chemistry, the physics, the math that you just had to work through and really push yourself. But you know, he also pointed to the same thing you did about the 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 joy of the beauty of learning about humanities. Like he really enjoyed those elective courses. Yeah. Uh that, that broadened his uh, his perspective.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that we had similar. Experiences in two very different schools.
0: But was that characteristic of your generation, you think, or or maybe just a, kind of an unusual set of circumstances the two of you had? I
1: can't say because going to schools like Caltech and, and Swarthmore, you're with a, a very select group of people. Um, And those people were all extremely curious about the world, extremely excited to be introduced to um, new ideas, uh, unfolding ideas. Um, And uh, so, in the world in which I found myself at Swarthmore, Yes, we were an unusual group of people who um, together were trying to uh, uncover what it was that what the world held.
0: But I wonder if looking back now, many years later, um, you see any particular advantage that came from that broad-based education Uh, Since so many scientists come up in more narrow confines, I guess you could say where you know they're not encouraged or they don't take that humanities uh, those kind of courses to the same extent.
1: That's right, Um, and uh, I give credit to my Swarthmore education for the fact that I could become a university president because when you're involved in high-level administration, or, and, and particularly when you're president of an organization, the kinds of problems you are faced with are not technical problems. They're problems of uh, personal interaction among people. Uh, they're problems of judging who is good in what kind of job. Uh, and who can most effectively contribute to a communal activity like running a, a university. Um, and so it's your sense of people, which is paramount. And I think I developed the ability to do that, maybe not as well as others, but, but at least well enough. Um, because I went to Swarthmore, uh, interesting. Because I had spent my time interacting with people from all walks of of intellectual life,
0: and you were also getting to do some research uh, in in le- in the lab dur- as an undergraduate, correct?
1: Not at Swarthmore so much, okay. Um, but I did. Uh, first of all, I spent. Um, a summer at uh Cold Spring Harbor. Um, and in fact, that was critical in my development, uh, having that experience. Um, and I did a an undergraduate thesis in chemistry, but I did it at the University of Pennsylvania, um, working in a chemistry lab.
0: Okay. Okay. Maybe we could, I, I don't, Think we have enough time to cover all of the steps in your career there's been so much but oh, i am like like when, when you when I look at your bio and i if i were to p- describe your um work in a single word i mean virologist is maybe the first word <laughs> i mean virology led in lots of different directions it opened up all kinds of frontiers but it starts there uh, how did you arrive? at virology? Like what what was it about viruses that excited you?
1: Well, you have to remember that the foundations of molecular biology were laid by virologists. Uh, They were mostly people working on bacteriophage, uh, which are viruses that grow in bacteria. Um, And I was aware of that. Uh, i was aware that luria and delbrook and uh, the people even even uh, uh watson uh the people who were laying the foundations of of the field uh did it by studying viruses uh and so when i went to graduate school uh i am gravitated to Laboratories of Virology, I worked actually with Cy with, uh, Leventhal, who was one of the early molecular biologists, himself actually trained in physics. Um, and But I, I had the sense that what I really wanted to do was to understand how mammals worked, how humans worked, how mice worked, um, and it occurred to me that if I wanted to take the lesson of of uh, virology, but apply it to higher systems, to more complex systems of living living systems, uh, that I should study animal viruses rather than bacteria. So I. In my first year of graduate school, uh, I took that question to the faculty. I took it first to Cy Leventhal, and he said it was an interesting perspective, but he didn't know much about it. And then I took it to Salvador Luria. And Luria had written the then only textbook on virology, and had written about animal viruses. So he had uh, understood that there were viruses that affected um, animals and that you could study them quantitatively. Uh, And so he he said to me, I'll tell you, I don't know if they're ready for prime time yet, but why don't you find out? And so he arranged for me to work the following summer with a quantitative animal virologist, Phil Marcus, uh, and to take a course at Cold Spring Harbor uh, in animal virology, which was a new course then being started, or then started. And I did that. And I realized that you could work quantitatively with animal viruses. It was more clumsy. It took longer to do experiments. Than with bacteriophage, but you could come out with quite precise answers. And so I I said I want to do my thesis in animal virology, and I chose to work with one of the people who taught the course at Cold Spring Harbor, uh, named Richard Franklin. Richard was a professor then at at uh, the Rockefeller University, and so I switched from MIT where I had been a graduate student, to Rockefeller, uh, and did my thesis with him.
0: Now, at this time, were you thinking about just fundamental understanding of the viruses themselves and how they differ uh, and what kind of effect they might have on the animal or the higher organism? Or, Or were you thinking of the virus as a tool that could perturb the higher organism? Um. I, I actually
1: wasn't smart enough to frame that question. Um, I, I And it was a sort of a gut feeling that if I worked in animal viruses, I was gonna find myself uh, able to think about um, mice. I mean, I had been at Jackson Lab for a summer uh, where mice were the organism of choice. Uh, and so that was an experience that that stayed with me. And I felt uh, through my career that if I could make a problem work in mice, that I could get the kind of depth of knowledge that related to humans, but at the same time, be able to manipulate the, the organism uh, on a reasonable timescale. Uh, And so uh, I chose to go to work on on, uh, animal viruses with that feeling in mind. And it turned out to be true uh, that, first of all, that the work that we did on animal viruses did teach us new things about how animal cells work and how mouse cells work, um, and ultimately became very good probes of the immune system for instance of um of animals but at that time i wasn't thinking much about the immune system that that interest of mine developed later
0: well so many things came later from that that early decision to go into virology i mean um learning about the the well i mean the work that m- made you famous with the reverse right. transcriptase right. um and and how that um, got you deep into molecular biology nucleic acids like how that information is carried through organisms that, that really challenged the the central dogma at the time um and and then later right then he started working more on the immunology like the um the recombinations there so um you mentioned a gut feeling that that this was going to be a fruitful area. but this is really important for a lot of young scientists, like thinking about how do you decide what to work on. And you had no idea at the time that it would that would lead you down all these different paths. Um, but <laughs> um, how did you how did you stay like focused?
1: Uh, well, I actually didn't stay focused. i Um, uh, You know, I I have analogized my experience in science and the way I feel about, in fact, how all young scientists uh, uh, are educated. I've analogized it to an hourglass. Um, In an hourglass, uh, you put a lot in at the top. It comes down to a very narrow uh, channel, and then it, it, it explodes at the bottom. To me, you start out in education, learning everything. You take all the courses, you're told to take all the courses, um, and you, you get a broad sense of the world. Uh, but when you go to graduate school, you focus down on a very narrow area, uh, and you have to, uh, and it's that's how you learn what knowledge is. Uh, but then you later can explode out the bottom and take many different uh, paths, uh, and uh, it's the bottom of the hourglass, and and so sure, I was able to do that. Um, first studying viruses, but then that viruses led me to think about cancer. And cancer was the the entree to thinking about cells. And once I was thinking about cells, I said, well, cells are organized in systems in the body. And the most interesting system to me was the immune system, because that's how we sense uh, the pathogens that, that uh, attack uh, human life. Um, and, and so I moved out into the immune system, working uh, on the recombination process that leads to antibodies and T cells, um, but ultimately working on, on innate immunity um, and issues that were closer to disease. And now I'm actually working very much with the um, biotech industry uh, trying to apply the knowledge that we have to human diseases.
0: Today's sponsor, AnswerThink, has been consistently recognized by SAP, one of the largest enterprise software companies, as a top business partner for delivering and implementing SAP solutions for small and mid-sized life science companies. Their SAP certified solutions designed for the life science industry are pre-configured, rapidly deployable, and address fundamental business and IT challenges such as integrating your business applications, delivering validated reporting, increasing your speed to market, support for global rollouts, as well as delivering a fully compliant solution that meets FDA's strict standards. Explore how AnswerThink can streamline your business processes to ensure growth. Visit AnswerThink.com slash Timmerman and get a copy of their ebook, Top Three Barriers to Growth for Life Science Organizations. That's AnswerThink.com slash Timmerman. And I'm pleased to welcome a new sponsor this week, Absci. Absci is all about creating new possibilities in the realm of protein-based therapeutics. What does this mean? Absci has a fundamentally different approach to drug discovery. It designs and develops next-gen biologics of any modality, from antibodies to T-cell engagers to completely novel protein scaffolds, including a futuristic format it calls bionic proteins. Because AbSci conducts its screens in its scalable production cell line, it collapses several steps of biologics discovery into one integrated efficient process. Absi also has a unique computational antibody and antigen discovery approach for isolating fully human antibodies from diseased tissues and using these antibodies to identify novel drug targets. Absi does all this with a powerful combination of deep learning AI and synthetic biology technologies. Absi is already helping some of the best partners in biopharma translate their ideas into drugs. Check them out at absci.com and absi.ai. things really changed for you in the seventies. You win the Nobel prize in 1975. And I think it was that same year that the the Asilomar conference was put together. And I know you had something to do with that. Again, um, coming back to some of your humanities roots and thinking about um, how science connects to the society at large. um, Why um, did you get involved with that, that question about how recombinant DNA Um, ought to be regulated or or ought to develop over time?
1: We were faced with um, the recombinant DNA revolution, which had very remarkable implications for how science was done, but also had uh, some people particularly worried about whether we were going to create problems of one form or another. Uh, And so uh, I said, I thought it was um, a problem that scientists should take on Uh, and uh, that we should come together as scientists to think through what the dangers might be, as well as what the opportunities might be in this new science, this new way of doing biology. Um, And the the group of us that that met and thought about this were of one mind, uh, that we should um, find a route to responsible behavior, um, and Paul Berg, Maxine Singer, and others, uh, whom, whom I worked with on this, uh, were very important in there, and 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 very much people who thought uh, broadly about social responsibility.
0: Now, were there uh, a lot of scientists at the time who thought, oh? Why bother with this? Uh, The public doesn't understand what we're doing. Um, Just keep focused on our work and advancing the field.
1: Yes, uh, there were many people who felt that. Um, But I think they sensed that um, it was not possible to ignore um, the danger elements. Uh, and I think we understood from the very beginning that we were moving towards um, genetic manipulation of organisms and, and ultimately developing the ability to do this in humans. And uh, that we had to think about that power because that power was the power to alter the evolution of. Of our own species,
0: and there's a serious ethical conversation that um, necessitates bringing more than just scientists to the table. Um, and and if you didn't have this kind of um, multilateral dialogue, whatever you want to call it, um, I mean, there was a there was a danger that the uh, public fear could end up shutting down uh, the funding, the the work. Um, you could really lose a lot as scientists.
1: Absolutely. Um, So it was in our own interests to um, have the Asilomar meeting. Um, It wasn't just in the interests of the larger community. Um, But we, Asilomar was um, a meeting of scientists uh, we had some ethicists. We had some lawyers uh, who came. Uh, we had newspaper people, um, but uh, the the core of it was science. Um, in the more recent considerations of gene editing, which we've now had two, two summits and are in the process of organizing a third, uh, the ethicists are playing a much larger role because we're getting closer and closer to actually being able to manipulate the genes of humans. And that is a, an issue uh, which scientists are no better at thinking about than, uh, than ethicists are. And, and we know that.
0: Yeah, I want to come back to that a little bit later. Um, But you mentioned your work with industry just briefly. When did that begin for you? Um, Biotech, you know, conventionally traced its beginnings to Genentech getting started around this time, 1976. Um, When did you get involved and how? I got involved around 1970. um,
1: Because... Uh, when I discovered the reverse transcriptase, uh, one of the first things that that I understood we should study was how the enzyme starts chains of, of product. Um, because every polymerase is faced with the problem of starting a chain. Um, starting to copy a piece of DNA, starting to copy a piece of RNA. You have to begin at a beginning. It's a catalyst. And there's no chain there to begin on. So uh, there are are enzymes that can, can make a beginning chain. But what we discovered very early on was that the reverse transcriptase needed a primer. That that primer was a a piece of DNA that could hybridize to a template at some place, wherever. And that that would begin a copying process by the reverse transcriptase. And so having primers was critically important. You couldn't start a chain without them. And, and we showed that. Uh, and it was actually something that I had worked on um, uh, during my training. So I, I was something I was thinking a lot about. Um, and what the primer that was most important was oligo-DT, was a short stretch of T residues. Um, thymine or uh, thymidylate residues. Um, and why was that important? Because messenger RNAs started at their three prime end with a poly A, and that was known. And so you could copy any messenger RNA using oligo DT as a primer, a short T stretch. And we showed that that was true. Um, Now, where do you get Oligo-DT? Well, it turns out there was a company that had been formed in the late 1960s by a chemist at at Brandeis University. It was was called um, uh, Collaborative Research. Um, and collaborative research was housed in a building in Waltham, Massachusetts. Um, this guy, Ori Friedman, had left Brandeis and had formed this company. It was literally the first company in biotechnology. And what it was formed to do was to manufacture nucleic acids, strings of of A's, G's, C's, and T's, but the easy ones to do were homopolymers, uh, oligo-DT being one of those. Um, and so they made the primer I wanted.
0: And this is even before Cohen and Boyer, recombinant DNA, Hallberg, oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, right. And so... I mean, could you make these primers yourself in the lab? I mean, I suppose, but I, it was
1: we knew how to link uh, uh, triphosphates, um, so you, yes, you could make it, but it was it was significant chemistry to do that, and then to purify it and to characterize and all of that, and and that's what this company was doing. So it was, I wasn't going to try to make this stuff, um, but I was overjoyed uh, that Ori Friedman was making it.
0: So here you have a company that's providing a useful service, tools to help you do your research, which is, you know, asking and answering questions one after the other.
1: Right. And so I bought his product from him, uh, but... We became good friends uh, and I I knew the people in the company. And so when recombinant DNA came along, I said to them, this is the future of your company. Uh, And we got together and formed Collaborative Genetics, which was an offshoot of collaborative research. Uh, And this this is 1975.
0: Um, so would you have been on the scientific advisory board or did you have some other role?
1: I was on the scientific advisory board, but I was
0: also a founder.
1: Um, and along, And I brought some friends of mine along with this, David Botstein, uh, Jerry Fink, uh, Ron Davis. Uh, and because it really looked like yeast could be the foundation for it. And these guys were the first East geneticists.
0: Um, now, so you clearly saw an upside to working with a company uh, and, and helping facilitate this um, new wave of recombinant DNA research. But, you know, this this was not a universal view across the world of academic science. So people looked at industry as kind of the, the dark side or, um, you know, hacks. We don't, why would you want to get involved with that sort of thing? And your answer to them was?
1: Uh, this was going to be the the route to which the science that we were doing was relevant to human interests. Um, And we couldn't do that in a university. Uh, It had to be done in a company. Um, And uh, we wanted to help that company form and focus and to bring the newly developing knowledge, because in those days, I mean, and it's still true, knowledge was changing literally day by day. Our understanding of of uh, how to put pieces of DNA together, how to copy them, how to put uh, DNA into cells, into organisms, um, how to man- manipulate uh, the, the whole splicing revolution uh, told us that there were elements of this problem that that were going to um, be really difficult to deal with. Um, and, uh, and so a company seemed like the right thing to do. You're right. Many people uh, saw it as the dark side. Uh, but I think because I had been so advantaged Iori Friedman's original decision to form a company, um, and so he had been ahead of me, and that's exactly where a company should be, with the with the right questions, uh, taking advantage of of new knowledge. Uh,
0: and I suppose getting established, winning the Nobel as young as you were, thirty seven. I mean, people in industry knew who you were. Um, the phone would ring. They did. <laughs> um, now, how did that inform that early career success, like having all the latitude that you did, and the ability to um, to, to move the field forward when you were in your 30s? How did that inform the way you went about uh, leading institutions, which came later, like the Whitehead and and Caltech?
1: Um it having the prominence that I did as a as a Nobel laureate did open doors and did mean that people would take my call uh if I called them uh that's absolutely true um and it it also was a responsibility uh that i had i think that every Nobel laureate feels to be a spokesman for uh, the community uh, to be uh, a a public face of the science. Um, And so uh, when I was asked by Jack Whitehead um, to advise him about forming an institute um, that was partly because I was prominent enough that his advisor knew me uh, and, and advised him to ask me. Uh, we hit it off, um, and he enabled me to form the Whitehead Institute.
0: But you... You used, um, to use a modern term, your platform. <laughs> you yes. used your, your, your accomplishments, your stature uh, to uh, start this independent institute. But you also, one of the things you did that I've read about was creating this fellows program where you gave a lot of young scientists a lot of latitude, uh, kind of like you had had. Right. Uh, why did you do that? Well, it was partly because I had had it. Uh,
1: I I was learning from my own experience that given uh, resources and freedom, uh, a young scientist will, can find his or her own pathway. And that it really was important that uh, young scientists be given that opportunity. Because they would find a direction that might not be obvious to those of us with lots of experience, because the experience that we had tended to uh, channel us into established pathways. Uh, and I wanted an opportunity for young people to get into their own pathways, uh, to think new ways, think about new ways to do science, Uh, uh, and uh, so I felt that that the system that we were developing of graduate school and postdoctoral training that was increasingly long, um, five, six years, seven years to train a, a student, and then another five years for a postdoc. Uh, meant that the young scientists with fresh ideas were being channeled into uh, their mentors' ideas, their mentors' directions, um, and weren't able until, really, until they got tenure, uh, in in their 40s, um, to set out in their own personal direction.
0: This seems like I've a really important
1: opportunity in my 20s.
0: Well, yeah, this, this seems like a really important point in how the scientific enterprise has changed between your generation and let's say mine and, and younger. And that is, uh, at the uh, part of my research for the hood book, I found that the average first time R01 grant winner when yeah. he was coming up was something like 30. Um, You know, that's right around when he got his and and got uh, on the faculty and got tenure shortly thereafter. And now it's in the early 40s. So uh, a lot of people just like don't make it all the way to that other side. They have to find some other line of work. Uh, Do you you worry about this? I worry about it a lot.
1: Um, And uh, it's 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 deeper even than just the way you put it, because by the time people are in their 40s, uh, ha- they have families, uh, they have much wider responsibilities. They're being pulled away from science uh, by the responsibilities of, of the world, um, whereas when they're younger, uh, they're less encumbered uh, and more able to put uh, their time and energy into finding the new directions that, that I think are, are central to the progress of science. Uh, so uh, I think we're, we've gone in exactly the wrong direction.
0: Is this the biggest um, job of uh, institutional uh, leadership today is creating that, that space where young people can spread their wings scientifically?
1: Yes. I think that would be wonderful, but I think very few uh, uh, institutional leaders are thinking that way. Um, And the program that I started at Whitehead was meant to show uh, that there is another way to uh, bring bring along the development of the best young scientists. Uh, And it has worked incredibly well And other people have tried to uh, mimic it. Uh, And there are other programs that give young people uh, freedom now. Uh, But none of them, I think, have been as successful as the Whitehead program for reasons that I I can go into.
0: Now, so there's this human piece that let's just say uh, could use some work or, or, uh, you know, in terms of on ramps for young people into the sciences, but at the same time, there's, I mean, you must look with some measure of amazement. I know I do at the tools that are available to ask and answer questions in biology from sequencing to synthesis, to imaging, structural biology, CRISPR. I mean, um, it's really pretty amazing what, um, it, the the tools that are at the disposal to right. enable discovery um wh- wh- how do you see like us um really taking advantage of these tools to advance um human health to the fullest uh we need to uh,
1: come together in in collaborative ways to bring these tools Um, together, because often it's not just one tool by itself. It's imaging and sequencing and um, genetics and this and that uh, that make for uh, a new direction. Uh, And so um, we do have to come together. But in the end, it's also... The imagination of a single individual or sometimes of a couple that uh makes it happen uh and so i think it's as important to be educating the individual as it is to being able to put together the structures of collaboration um and uh and I don't think people need to wait until they have all the tools at their disposal, because by the time they're good at computation and, and at imaging and at genetics and and, in hand, uh, they're, they're gonna be too old. Um, so they have to just start young and incomplete in their toolbox. Um, but what what has always struck me is that I go into a laboratory and talk to the people who are there and they're all so knowledgeable about what they're working with and what they're thinking about. And these are kids who have been at it for two years, three years. They're all newbies, and yet here they are, really sophisticated, narrowly sophisticated, but but truly sophisticated. Uh, It doesn't take a lot, and that's, that's what I discovered at Jackson Lab when I was in high school. It doesn't take a lot to be able to start investigating new questions.
0: Well, you know, you said starting young and I was, I was just going to ask how young I mean, should this be starting in high school, like e- encouraging young people to think about uh, the possibilities in biology and that joy of discovery and, and satisfying your curiosity. I, a lot of young people just don't get exposed to it.
1: That's right. Uh, and the more that can get exposed, the better um, in in high school. Uh, my my very good friend Irv Weissman uh, and I often uh, share reminiscences because he also started working in science in high school um, at uh, in 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 Montana, um, and we feel very strongly uh, that high school students should have the opportunity. Um, to, uh, to to be exposed to experimental science um, and and often are not.
0: But now coming out of this, um, the pandemic of COVID-19, there've been a lot of changes to the way science gets done. Certainly a lot more awareness of um, the work and, and its ability to do amazing things very quickly. Um, what do you think will be I mean, there, there has been new collaborative efforts. There's been, you know, science has sped up with the whole open source, you know, publishing of preprints. Uh, there's been some more funding in some spots. Do you think the scientific enterprise is going to be in, in, in better shape coming out the other side of this? Um,
1: what I don't see Um is the development of uh, the opportunity for individuals to take their own directions. Uh, And and I still think that that's critically important. Um, Much of what you just described, all of which is leading to uh, a uh, a, a supercharging of, of, of research in certain ways, is collaborative. Um, and uh, I, I, I think that can go a long way to um, helping the world take advantage of, of, of the new science that we have. Um, but I still don't think uh, that you can substitute Uh, individual commitment, individual understanding, individual pathways.
0: Yeah, yeah. So are you generally supportive of things like NIH's young investigators' uh, outreach efforts and Uh, NIHMI is trying trying to do things like this too? Right. Uh, The more that we have uh, opportunities
1: for young people to think their own thoughts, the better off we are.
0: So if you were 16 or 18 or 20, uh, starting out today, looking at the world of biology, um, what would you want to work on? Well, I I have answered
1: that question
0: many times
1: uh, and have always focused in neuroscience because the biggest un- um, Ununderstood areas of biology are in the brain. How the brain works, how the brain processes information, uh, how the brain develops imagery. Um, it's all still very obscure um, and with tremendous opportunity. Uh, so, I would focus there, but I also believe that you can start anywhere in biology. Uh, I mean, other sciences do, but I, I tend to think about biology. Um, you can start anywhere uh, and find challenging problems that, that cry out for solution, uh, regulatory biology. I mean, we still don't understand Gene transcription. We know how uh, an enzyme copies one strand of DNA into RNA, and RNA can make protein, but we don't understand the control of that process um, at all well. And in fact, with with the recent discoveries of of these uh, uh, like lipid droplets, organizing um, regulatory machinery, uh, we have a new challenge uh, in front of us uh, that I, I, now I see young people gravitating toward, and I'm very excited by
0: it. It's, uh, it's basic research, learning some of those fundamentals, and then seeing where that leads. Uh, that could lead you down to new insights into cancer biology, into immunology, Lots of different ways. You
1: you
0: Last thing I want to ask you, David, um, now that you're in your 80s, um, y- you, um, you can do a lot, you know, whatever you want, lots of different things. But how do you keep your mind um, fresh, um, to, uh, you know, focused on things that you want to understand deeply, but also open and curious to new things?
1: um i i have chosen to close my laboratory um and so i'm no longer trying to organize a group to investigate to directly investigate problems um but i'm i'm still interested in the directions of science i read about it uh i talk to people about it i i go to advisory board meetings of various institutions um, where I hear about the latest developments. Um, And that keeps me excited, uh, keeps me interested. Um, And I'm I'm aware of, of, in a sense, the full range of complexity that goes into science um the 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 new focus in computational work um in in um the fusing of of imagery with uh, quantitative thinking um and uh, that is all uh, very satisfying to me um but I'm no longer creating any of it myself.
0: Well, you don't necessarily need to have your own lab to create, um, as I, I think I read somewhere that you have 20 of your trainees at one point or another uh, end up in the National Academy of Sciences. That's uh, correct. So you have this whole network of people out there who are pursuing their own curiosities and interests and making discoveries that, you know, you kind of help set in motion, but and kind of watch from afar. And,
1: and I'm still trying to help them um, where I work with them in uh, fostering their own careers. Um, and so uh, it, it, I'm in, still in contact with many of the people who have been so successful coming out of my lab.
0: Well, I can say um, it's been a pleasure speaking with you David, I know that you are at this point where you can have a lot of impact on a young person's life. One little anecdote, I'll tell you, uh, you know, I had a summer intern this summer and the very first assignment I had her do was to cover one of the startup companies that uh, that you've been working on, uh, Appia Bio. And Uh I don't know, I mean, you only spoke with her for maybe 15 minutes. uh, But I mean, that just I mean, that made her summer. And I don't know what she, you know, again, I don't know what she's gonna go on and do in the industry, but um, it definitely provided a spark. It's a real privilege to be able to do that.
1: Well, I, I, and I enjoy it immensely, so.
0: Well, thank you, David, for your time today on The Long Run. Very nice talking with you. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.